Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, I'm just so thrilled to invite one of my favorite mentors from my undergrad time, Dr. Wayne Wu. I wrote part of my undergrad thesis under his guidance, and I'm just beyond excited to have him on the show. Wayne is currently an associate professor at the Department of Philosophy in the Neuroscience Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. He works on attention, perception, action, and schizophrenia at the interface between philosophy and cognitive science. In this episode, we chat about his recent review on attention titled On Attention and Norms, an opinionated review of recent work. We also chat about his view on the current attention economy. For example, are we all doomed when all the social media algorithms are fighting for our attention? Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I've always enjoyed talking to you since I was an undergrad attending your office hours, and I am just so happy to have this chance to invite you on the show. So today we will start our conversation on this review piece of yours on attention and norms and opinionated review of recent work, which is a great title, by the way. But before we dive right in, I want to ask you this question that many listeners of this show might have. Why are you, a philosopher, interested in attention? I think it starts from a more general interest that I began with. So I was first a, a, a biochemist. I went to graduate school at Berkeley to do biochemistry. And there I just really wanted to understand living things. So that's why I got into biology. And that interest is still with me as a philosopher. So I'm interested in us as entities that have minds. And I got started in philosophy because I was interested in what it is to be a human agent. And then when I started thinking about that, I decided, or I convinced myself that there's an argument to be made that everything we do depends on attention. And the just, the gist idea is just, you know, when you do stuff, you respond selectively to the world or to your own thoughts or to a person or a conversation. And that sort of selective response um, is, uh, I think, a perfectly good, in fact, I think it's the implicit conception of attention in cognitive science. And so that's why I got to attention, because I was interested in human agency. And human agency is just driven. Everything we do is driven by a certain kind of attention. We don't always notice it. So I don't like to talk about conscious attention versus unconscious attention. Um, I think the better notion is something like access. So sometimes, of course, we know that we're paying attention. You're paying attention. I know you're, you know that you're paying attention to me and I'm paying attention to you when you ask that question. Um, but a lot of times that we don't notice, but we respond, like when you drive a car, you might be having a conversation. So I think it's just it's a deep part of our lives. And the interesting part is when we don't notice it. But yeah, that's how I got into it. That's a fascinating backstory. Um, and I can't help but wonder, you mentioned the word agency, which is not something that's as prevalent as like attention in, I guess, a mm -hmm. lot of psychological literature. So I wonder if you can unpack that term a little bit. What do you mean when you are talking about agency? Sure. So I like this old fable from a philosopher, French philosopher, Jean Bearden. 
Um, but I, I'm told, or I've read that the idea is found in Aristotle and other thinkers in the past. And the fable that Burden told was about this donkey. You probably know this, Andrew. So, um, the donkey is supposed to stand between two bales of hay and, uh, it's the same distance left, right. There's no difference between the bales of hay. And, uh, the story goes, as I understand it, that the donkey has no basis for choosing one over the other because they're exactly the same, same distance and so forth. And what I would add in this story is that there's no internal bias or any other kind of bias. Like one isn't brighter than the other or the donkey doesn't have his bizarre leftward bias. And so in the story, the donkey doesn't ever make a choice. And so it dies, it starves to death. And I think right there is encapsulated what I think about as human agency, which is that to survive, to make progress, to move forward, we have to do something. And then the way that I would like to understand doing something is really nicely exemplified in that story. It's that what the donkey is faced with are, in pared down, two possibilities of things that it could do. And the problem is that it can't decide on one or the other. So it dies. Why? It didn't do anything. So what is it to do something? It's to solve the problem that's exemplified by that particular case. And the problem is something I would call the selection problem. And this is a story that I think would be familiar to psychologists and neuroscientists. There's just too much stuff out there in the world, too many ways to respond to it. And unless you solve that problem, which is what the donkey is also facing in a very smaller, in a smaller form, you don't act. So I think of agency as embedded in that sort of general problem and that the solution to that problem is getting you to respond to the world in a certain way. And it could be because you just like that bale of hay on the left because it's, you know, more yellow or um, you made a decision. You just finally decided, you know, I got to eat. I'm going to go for that one. Right. So different kinds of biases on the way that we act. So the, the short pithy summary maybe is something like, we're always facing these selection problems and agency is the solution to it. So that's a very interesting. And thank you so much for kind of unpack this fascinating story that you mentioned um, in the review article. But I guess the question that I will have is why? Like, where does this agency arise? Like in an alternative universe, let's say that there's no agency. There's just a universe where creatures are all on autopilot. Will right. we be, ever be able to tell a difference? Like it, it just feels uh -huh. like this, like components of selecting things seem to be rather imposed. It sounds like something that would be nice to have. I just remember this debate that I actually had a lot with the other host on the show, Eric. Uh -huh. We were uh -huh. debating a lot at the point, to the point that we were like, we're uh -huh. never, ever going to talk about free will ever again. Uh, because uh -huh. every time it's like intense. So I can't help but like thinking that there's some like connections between this idea of agency and to this kind of long-standing question of free will, will we ever be able to notice the difference if in alternatives that there's no agency at all? Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. I think there are two perspectives to take on that. So one would just be visit this planet and there are these weird looking things that you've never seen before. And this thing that I call the selection problem is a general problem that lots of systems face, even systems that you wouldn't call agentive systems. In that sense, the selection problem should be very familiar to everyone out there who has a kind of empirical mindset because, you know, computers face it and, I don't know, automated systems face it um, and we face it. So um, 
So I think you're absolutely right to pick out that that problem is too general as described, pick out just the agency. So I think from the third person perspective, there's a sense in which just observing a system that looks like it's solving a selection problem, you can't infer from that, that it's an agent. So I think you're absolutely right about that. I would emphasize first the other direction, that if you're an agent, the reason you're an agent is that you solve a particular version of that problem. And now I want to sort of move not from the kind of um, external observation, but to come inside. And this is where it gets a little bit trickier. You might've noticed that earlier I said something about like, I don't really like to use the term consciousness if I can help it, but um, it would be very easy in this context is something like, oh, okay, if I move myself into the inside of that creature, into me, what's different about me when I solve a selection problem is I can think about it. I can be aware that I've got the problem. I can reason about it, right? I can remember past solutions that I've learned to, to help me solve that problem. I can recognize that certain things are higher and lower value. And so Angie, I think one kind of quick response is something like, well, there is a perspective in which from the inside, um, you have a certain kind of awareness that you're engaging the problem in a very different way. And so that doesn't solve the outside question of if you're a scientist and an anthropologist, how you would determine whether a system was agentive or not. On the inside, you just say like, look, it's me, right? And I think the fundamental difference, which is hard to measure sometimes, is that once you go on the inside of what it is like to be an agent, what you're finding there are things like mentality. Things like, lots of people would like to appeal to consciousness here. I would just like to appeal to the idea of a mind, right? Being able to have experiences, to have memories, to attend. Um, so the idea of agency then emerges from a particular version of a selection problem where we understand that is faced by creatures with a mind. And now you're thinking, I'm sure, that's sort of buck passing, right? Because then the question is, what does it take to be a creature with a mind? But look, if we're in the business of cognitive science, we're already committed to that, right? So I, I, I came on this thinking like, oh, this is a psychology podcast. And it's absolutely right to talk about agency. But I think like, given that it's a psychology podcast, I get to help myself to the idea of a mind. That's, 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 right. That, uh, that, yeah. Just for sake of argument, I agree that the perfectly legitimate question of like, all right, well, you know, we can push it back and say like, what would it take to, for that creature to have a mind? And that's another question. But if you grant me that, then that's the secret. Those are the, the selection problems that matter, the ones that are faced by creatures that have perception, memory, and are faced with this inundation of too much that they perceive, too much that they remember, too much that they think. And then that's the version of the problem that generates issues. Right. I really enjoy this distinctions between this kind of from an observer perspective and from what it's like for being inside. And I have to say that sometimes I wonder um, if there's ever going to be a way to get into the inside. Because I think psychology yeah. as a field has long passed the introspection methodology yeah. side. And it's almost yeah. like the turning away from that, it's almost like saying that, yeah, we know it's not going to happen. It's not going to work very well. So mm -hmm. is that kind of suggesting that there's always going to be an aspect of human psychology that's not going to be accessible with whatever methodological advances that either psychology yeah. or neuroscience has? Yeah, that's a huge question. That's a really important one. I think, so you're absolutely right as you pointed out that um, introspection for a long time. Well, for a long time, it was a fundamental hit doing psychology. And then it wasn't. 
And I think rightly so for various reasons. It's made a comeback in part and pause um, and people got interested in consciousness. I mean, it's certainly an important part of clinical practice. It's an important part of psychiatry. It's an important part of dealing with people who come in with various ailments and like they report their experiences of pain. That's very important for us. Uh, actually, I would point out optometry too. Um, you know, you go in and you're, what are you basically reporting is reporting on the lower vision. It's just a kind of aspect of the experience. So on the clinical side, I don't think it's ever gone away. In fact, it's useful. So I think that's a good lesson though, right? Because, uh, for us, um, it, it shows that there are instances in which introspection is actually reliable about telling us about what people are experiencing, that we rely on the clinical context to be able, and the proof is in the footing. We all are wearing corrective lenses that actually work with you navigate around the world. So. That introspection on blurry visual works very well. Um, I think psychiatry depends on it. I think that obviously to deal with people's pains, um, it uh, shows that in fact we can, um, they're giving us a good readout of the signal and we can intervene and they give us a continuous readout of the signal. Let us know that that's the analgesic that that's working. But on these broader issues, I think and it, there's a bigger issue, I think, than in the background, which is that. It's right, looking skeptical about introspection, but on the other hand, it is itself a kind of informational or detection discrimination system that we have. And I think in that respect, it itself is an interesting psychological topic, an empirical topic. We do it all the time. Admittedly, sometimes we do it really badly. Um, but sometimes we do it really well, to some point, the clinical stuff. And so I think a really important thing for psychology is, and cognitive science is, um, to not give up on this, but to actually scrutinize it as itself a topic for empirical investigation. And I think to the extent that we can find some ways to empirically understand how it works, then that we can come back around and say, like, oh, we have a better understanding of what's going on when people report their pains or their visual bits and so forth. Um, and then that'll help us understand the faces on which we can actually use it. And if we can do that, then I think we go back to your original point, which is um, that knows there are ways for us to get on the inside of these creatures like us who are able to do these sorts of things. And I think if we do that, then I think we can make an advance. I think the problem has been... Again, in the background of the question, that we sort of have this over reliance on it without really understanding how it works. And we've also, and I think this comes from the Cartesian idea, the old kind of philosophical idea, like, oh, it's really good. Like, you never make a mistake, right? The infallibility of introspection. I think when we give up on all these things and treat it as an empirical topic, we make a lot more progress. And then we have to deal with it constructively with the question that you asked. Right. That kind of reminds me of, um, I think a couple of months ago, there was this PAS paper by like economists. Basically, it's like all about the discovering of what they call like feeling numbers. And they're like cheering on the fact that they found that, oh, it's actually when you ask people to self-report on a scale of one to 10, like how happy you are, it's actually predictive of something. And I think there was like this kind of storm on Twitter by psychologists like, Oh, I guess you guys just discovered lighter scale, which is, oh, yeah, it was, I think, yeah. Yeah, the kind of the drama aside, there's something we're interested in because I don't think we really know or do we about like how we were actually capable of translated subject feelings into objective numbers. And sometimes like the numbers yeah, that we right. translated out is actually like predictive of things. 
So I think you're right that this is kind of avenue for research, not avenue for despair. So I want to go back to um, the paper for a bit, um, because in one of the figures, you provided a very interesting schematic illustration of the many biases that are necessary to induce an, quote, active attentional orientation, unquote. I want to pause here because I think there's a lot to unpack here. And to start with, I guess my first question is, Assuming this schematic figure is accurate, or in the near future, we would be able to have a somewhat complete figure of all the biases necessary. How would you go about building a computational model of this? It just seems to be very complicated. So just to step back a little bit about the perspective about it. When I was thinking about the donkey again, just to go back to that example as a way of kind of a little bit of a broader context of the way that I was thinking about it and how that figure comes about you got to do stuff and doing stuff could be just looking looking is a really interesting eye movements just really fascinating right because it's almost like a it really is like a window to the soul um and one of the things that i try and bring out in that paper and at least in some examples is that it's a window to your biases where i mean by bias something very generic right something that's just reflective of a broad set of kinds of experiences that you have. So it doesn't have necessarily a negative aspect, although it can. So that was the point about the the donkey case, which is that in general actions, but including eye movements, which I think of as a kind of interesting action, um, again, there's just selection problems. And one of my favorite examples is Alfred Yarbus, the Soviet scientist who did a lot of work on eye movements. And um, just a lot of his behavioral work showing that the same subject will look at the same object in very different ways, depending on the task. Um, and so, you know, that the, the task structure gives a kind of bias on, on how the eye moves. So if you think about attention in a very simple way, which is, I think, the way that everyone, in a way, has to think about it, which is just, yeah, you're selecting something in order to respond to, depending on the task. That's just the idea of attention there. Then... I think it gets complicated, Angie, because I think part of the way of understanding this, at least in the first instance, is going to be have to uh, it's going to have to be restricted to the task. I think I, I think that's how, and I think that's how we have been proceeding in the science of attention, anyway. Right? We have different task paradigms, and you know, so maybe the task is just visual search, um, and then I think. Then it's the dissection of the different kinds of biases, which is what's in that diagram, right? So learned value for different stimuli uh, or expectation, depending on, right? Um, or um, having some goal of information gathering. And it gets complicated, but each of those things I think we have pulled out to study in, independently. And I think, I guess my hope, just to answer your, or to go back to the question, my optimism hopefully here is that each pulling out of it, extracting a different kind of bias, which establishes its own research program for that task, will come up with a kind of high-level computational model, understanding what the purpose of the task is for the particular variables there. Um, and that I guess the the hope is that independent work will find common principles that when each field comes back, you can merge them all. And 
the neural and the computational underpinnings of that structure there. Um, but that's got to be decades away. Related questions to this computational model thing is a few years ago, there was this paper that made a big splash in artificial intelligence called Attention is All You Need. I'm pretty sure you've already looked into it. I'm just kind of curious to know if you think that it was a misnomer to call a network attention mechanism, or do you think that they really capture something that's quite essential to attention in their network? Yeah. So one thing that I think is important, one thing that's important to uh, inference that I think we have to avoid is the equation of selection with attention. And let me just give you one example. So I, if, you, if you look in, I think, lots of textbooks or even the introduction section of lots of papers on attention, a very standard way of defining it is something like, you know, attention is the selection of information or something for further processing. And the problem with that is that it's just false. Uh, it's false in the following sense. There are a huge number of systems that show selection for further processing that have nothing to do with attention. And I'll give you one example, and you may not like this one. It doesn't really matter because you can come up with your own. In fact, these networks might be a counterexample depending on your attitude towards the network. But my favorite example is just on the retina. There's already selection of various wavelengths, right? And of course, information for the visual system is carried in light. So you have selection of information for the processing already at the retina. Um, but as far as I know, no one ever claims that there's attention on the retina. Okay. So that just shows that you, the standard definition is too broad. Um, and because that's a counterexample, again, if you don't like the counterexample, it's easy to come up with lots of other counterexamples. And so, um, this is where I think James got it right because he didn't stop there. He said, you know, attention is selection of something, but it's selection of something to deal with, to perform an action. And this is where attention and action become really connected. But let's just go back. If you thought that Anytime you had informational selection, you have attention, then you will say things like, oh, yeah, here's a network, a system that is processing information selectively for generating text that is very human-like, depending on the inputs. And if someone then says like, ah, yeah, that's attention, then I think they're using the wrong definition there. They're using one that is patently false. So this connects back to an early question you asked me, Angie, about the whole point about the agency bit. Right. If you look at that diagram of the donkey, right, it's two input nodes, one for each bale of hay and an output node. And that's just a simple network, right? I mean, you can make it much more complex. And so nothing in that structure tells you that you've got attention unless you connect it with all the other things that we care about in psychology, like agency, consciousness, memory, and so So I think on the one hand, these systems are really interesting. And I think, um, uh, trying to understand selective information processing in those systems will be very illuminating. Um, we just have to be careful. And this is not about words. It's just about keeping straight the different phenomenon. We have to be careful of thinking about those as somehow exemplifying attention. I think the AI component is actually very interesting. Again, to go back to that question when you asked me about agency, right? And you asked me about this world with like stuff going on, because of course, as you know, it has been a big question about when these sorts of systems might have mentality, the much more older Turing test. Uh, and so I think all those things are very intertwined. 
right? Are these systems really mentalistic systems? Uh, not merely selective information processing system, because that's not enough for attention. Right, right. Mentality, that's definitely a big question. Um, and I want to go back to this schematic figure for one last time, because I think there was a really interesting distinction that you were proposing there, which is this active attentional orientation versus passive attentional orientations. And I'm just kind of curious about what would a passive attentional orientation look like? Would something like, for example, me scrolling on TikTok, just mindless browsing cute cat videos to be an example of passive attentional orientation? Right. Yeah. So I think that's the most interesting part of attention. Uh, at some point, I think it's when we do theorizing, when we sort of take a step back and try and impose a kind of framework when we think about the empirical data, when we try and design experiments or formulate hypotheses, right? There's always some background theory. And, um, and you have to make decisions at that point, right? That itself is an interesting question. That's where I think philosophy has its place in science, right? When you start to wonder, as you've done in your own sort of thinking, when you sort of wonder about the fundamental presuppositions in your field, and then you think through those cases and you have to decide on how do you navigate that. Um, so I'm just going to offer something which I won't try and defend here because probably it would take too long to try and defend. But um, we, we do have a, a control automaticity distinction in psychology. It goes back to uh, Schneider and Schifrin, 1977 or 1976, I think, is sort of a landmark sort of distinction. And so I think the active passive, I would like to kind of map onto that distinction. And then I'm going to make what seems like an arbitrary decision here. Um, I can argue for it, but again, I just want to make it arbitrary just to, just to get to the interesting point of your question. So the arbitrary decision, what will sound arbitrary is to say that I'm just going to take control, the idea of control and staple it to the idea of a task structure. And then the idea of a task structure for current purposes is we're just going to limit it to what's defined in the experimental setting when you give your subjects instructions. So you can call that forming an intention, you can call that top-down control, whatever you'd like. But the point is just to pin it to the task. And then everything else falls out as automatic. And this is just a regimen to, so to have the conversation. And now the dark side, the passive stuff, is exactly that stuff, which is not part of any kind of explicit task, right? I mean, I'm writing a paper and all of a sudden I find myself, I've been on Facebook for 20 minutes. Right? How did I get there, right? Or, you know, or just I'm zoning out, but I'm still like, I'm watching a movie and, you know, it's not like I'm a zombie. It's this kind of passive listening of what's going on. And, you know, I'm not really focusing or concentrating or I'm not, you know, I've not made it a task to, to really understand that. So, um, I think much of our lives is driven by that sort of attention, which is why I was interested in all these different kinds of biases. So the idea that it's passive, I think. Um, we should pay attention to that because it's precisely interesting because it is independent of the kinds of our, our explicit goals and our explicit tasks. Um, sorry. So I, maybe I've lost the question, but yes, I think that's the most interesting part of, of attention where it really bubbles up as mattering to us because it's like, oh my God, I wasted all that time. On Facebook, or um, some of the examples that they give there, you've been to a conference, right? I mean, 
I, I'm sure we've all had this moment of a conference where you're talking to someone you've just met. Maybe it's a famous professor, someone higher up in the hierarchy than you, and they're and you're a student. I may have been there too. And, and you're talking to them, and their eyes are constantly looking over your shoulder. You know this, right? And it's not like they're 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 not thinking to themselves, God, this is so boring. I'm looking for someone more interesting. They may intentionally want to engage with you, but of course they have values. So I'm at a conference. I want to talk to other famous people or something. Or, you know, maybe they're not thinking that. But the point is just that that movement, this kind of passive, but kind of attentional, it's a search, right? I think all, it's just so pervasive in our lives and, and so interesting because it's sometimes so consequential. So I know you also had a public piece on Institute of Art and Ideas talking about this phenomenon, doom scrolling and attention economy. And I'm wondering if you want to share some of your thoughts with our audience. Being someone who's Twitter and social media a lot, let me just ask on behalf of our fellow social media users, are we doomed? Are we doomed? Um, yeah, so on that broader issue, so, so one, I think cognitive science has a really important role to play in dealing with what is sometimes called the attention economy. I don't myself like that term. I, I think it's, it's fine. It brings out lots of things. So it's not, I don't want this to be too much quibbling. Um, but behind the idea of the attention economy is something like a commodification of attention. And why I don't like that is that there is a tradition that I do think is problematic in psychology where we treat attention as some kind of resource energy kind of thing. And I don't think that's the right way of thinking about attention. It's unfair to just say that without backing that up. But I just want to highlight that the, 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 the metaphor of an attention economy um, can be driven by that, which I think would be not the right way of thinking about attention. But to go back, I think the right way of thinking about attention is precisely you know, this Jamesian way that the reason why we have attention is that we got to be able to deal with the world like the donkey, right? Um, and it's, it's when that way of dealing with the world gets co-opted. And, and it's not so nefarious, right? It's co-opted because we let it be co-opted and not because we're selling a commodity. It's that we're agents. We want to interact on Twitter. I find Twitter often very useful, as you probably do. Like people announce scientific papers. And a lot of the reasons why I know about these papers is because of Twitter. And that's why I'm on Twitter, mostly. And then, of course, the election happened and then everything, you know, and then I got sucked into all that. It's a thing, right? Because what happened there is that I have an interest. I care about what's happening in the politics in this country. And the last election, obviously, Twitter exploded in many ways. And that pulled my attention to it. Okay. And part of that was voluntary, but at some point I just couldn't help. I had to check every five minutes to find out what the election counts were and so forth. And that part, it becomes involuntary. So I don't think that it's that we're doomed. It's that I think the thing to see there is that the commodification, if it's a commodification, is a commodification of our agency. And then I think the right way of thinking about it is not in terms of economics per se. It's in something like, oh, there's a good way and a bad way of engaging with Twitter. The good way of engaging with Twitter is maybe to go in with a set of questions and interests that are part of what you value in life, like science, 
and to engage with it actively. But even if we engage with it kind of in this very automatic way, you're extracting what you want. You know, what's a good way of doing it? You search your feed and you just have a glance at the papers and you're done. You move on and do your next task. The bad way is that, you know, all these things that if you could step back and say like, oh, I don't like that. I don't want to look at kitty videos all day, right? Well, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay, right? But these things that pull me in, that's not a good way of doing it. So if we think about a kind of virtue for attention, I think that's the way that I'd like to think about it, right? It's not the right economics. It's the right way of being a kind of agent, right? Being a good agent versus a bad one. So I don't think we're doomed. I think the way of, of, of solving the doomsday problem is pretty much what is true in any domain. It's just to do better. But can we really do better? I mean, how do we do better on something when, for example, all of the algorithms are all seem to be fighting for your attention? I think we can, but I think it takes practice. There's a famous experiment, uh, the inattentional blindness. Well, I like to think about it in a different way, right? So the standard, uh, the famous experiment is the one that Dan Simons did with the gorilla. And as you know, right, and every listener of this podcast, I'm sure will know, right? You're counting the basketball and lots of people don't see the gorilla. And it's called inattentional blindness. I mean, terrible name for it. Um, and people got interested in it because, you know, one thing, one, one interesting question, which is another topic is, um, you know, what's the relationship between attention and consciousness? Because you pull attention away and then you go blind, right? It's like you lose, you lose kind of visual consciousness. But what I find really interesting about that video and the, the entire set of experiments is that another thing that's really probing is something like distractibility. The ability of a stimulus that is salient in a very generic sense to pull your attention away. And so just the hopeful thought there is to think about the results from that experiment is showing that actually when you are on task, you don't notice irrelevant stuff like the gorilla. So there's actually a positive spin, right? Because, you know, there's, there's a use of the word blindness in English where we mean something pejorative, like, you know, it's right in front and obvious and you should be able to see it. Um, whereas I think actually there's a, there's a positive spin to it, which is that you are being, you're basically shutting down anything that's irrelevant as you do stuff. And the fact that kind of phenomenon is instantiated in lots of different contexts, right? The first version of that, of course, was dichotic listening, right? Being able to kind of shift between auditory streams. The fact that we could actually do that actually tells me that in fact, yes, it is very achievable. Like what's going on in these, all these cases of, of social media is that, yeah, they're trying to distract you and that's fine. I mean, the world is full of distractions. And so I think what I'm hopeful for is that we already have a baseline where if we're focused enough on something, we can actually be blind. We can silence these distractions. And I think that's what gives me hope. The mechanism is already there. What it takes is a kind of practice. Okay, that definitely makes me feel better. It's got to make me feel better too, right? Actually, yeah, I haven't quite put it that way, right? But you, you put it nicely as a way of like, oh, is it, you know, do you I'm like, oh, yeah. No, maybe we're not. Okay, so I know we're running low on time, and I do want to wrap up this conversation with a more forward-looking note. So your new book, Movements of the Mind, which will be out in 2023 by Oxford. Um, so this book is going to explore the idea of agency and 
I had the honors of getting a sneak peek of the intro, which is so fascinating already. So I wonder if you can share with us what this book is about and why agency, how is it related to movements of the mind, and also how is it related to the topic attention, which you've been researching for so long and we've been talking about for so long. Um. So. Uh... One one issue about the movements of the mind is that it's really about things that we do in our head, so mental agency. And one reason why I wanted to do that was motor control was so complicated. I mean, when we think about agency, we often think about moving our bodies and doing lots of things, interesting things with our bodies. And it's fascinating, but I just wanted to not have to deal with motor control. So that was almost just like kind of laziness, like it's too complicated and it would be too hard. So let me deal with things that are easier, quote unquote, like reasoning and uh, remembering and introspection is there's a chapter on introspection there um attending and so forth so that's why it was limited in that way um but again fundamentally again what got me interested what brought me back to biology so i still think of myself as a biologist but at this kind of as, as a philosopher trying to understand things um, like I used to be interested in molecules because molecules are really interesting, right? Regulation of genes and, you know, protein, protein interactions. Um, but when I got back into it, it was like, oh, you know, we're pretty interesting too at this really high level. And what's really interesting about this? Well, if you say thinking, I mean, like, I say, well, thinking is a kind of agency. If you say like, oh, we can remember all sorts of stuff where we can imagine things. I'm like, oh, well, that's a kind of agency. And so if you list all the kinds of things that we do, Ultimately, they have this agent of caste. And so I think it's hard to disconnect a lot of the mind's activities from the mind's movements in this kind of agent of sense. So that's why it's there. Uh, and I do hope scientists will look at it. It is a philosophical work, but it's written from someone who's a, who is a recovering biochemist, but also still thinks of himself as a biologist. So really trying to understand the way the world works. But at this kind of conceptual level that I think we also need, you know, as part of science. So, Yeah, and with that, I would like to thank you again for joining on the show today. It is a pleasure to talking to you again, and I am so looking forward to read more about this book. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestion for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show notes or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.